0: There can be few things in life more tragic than the death of a child. Not surprisingly, when this is represented in literature, the deathbed scene will surely be poignant, empathetic and emotionally memorable. But as Morwen Cook and Oliver Hancock discuss in conversation together, 19th century and 21st century texts are very different in their approach to this set piece, moving away from representations of the child as the angel of innocence to a more realistically human portrayal, This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. So I'm uh, Morgan and
1: I'm Ollie and we're both PhD
2: students at the University of Liverpool. I study representations of assisted dying in contemporary narratives and
1: And I study the depiction of children in postmodernist American literature.
2: And just to kind of reiterate what we're hoping to look at today, which is um, representations of children and death, comparing Victorian literature with contemporary. And, and what we're really interested in is how contemporary literature um, responds to, disrupts and subverts uh, the tropes that we find in Victorian literature. So the angelic image of the children or the angelic image of the dying person becomes a little bit more awkward and messy and complicated.
1: Yeah, this just kind of came out of conversations we had in our office about our respective research, which maybe at first glance might not seem the most obvious point of comparison. But actually we found that the deeper we probed, especially with reference to Victorian literature, then there were kind of many points of of intersection.
2: Which I think is why we've adopted the conversational style for this, so that you can maybe get a bit of that fluidity. So. The kind of most obvious point of comparison is the fact that a lot of deathbeds that you find in Victorian literature are of children, often uh, female children. And an obvious example of this is in Charlotte Bronte's novel Jane Eyre, where Helen and Jane are at a Lowood institution for poor and orphaned girls, and there's an outbreak of typhus, and as Helen lies dying, she counsels Jane on what her death means, saying, If we were dying in pain and shame, if scorn smote us on all sides and hatred crushed us, angels see our tortures, recognize our innocence, if innocent we be, why then should we ever sink overwhelmed with distress when life is so soon over and death so certain an entrance to happiness, to glory? So even in a situation which seems desperately unfair, Helen remains compliant and gracious. Her acceptance of death becomes as a response to her gratitude at avoiding further suffering on earth and of course Helen and Jane are both orphans and what Helen draws on in this is this idea of being looked after, that somebody cares and is watching over you and her death is a cornerstone for Jane as her equanimity is a challenge to Jane's cynicism and anger so Helen's parting speech is very much her legacy within the text in the sense that it's the guiding philosophy for Jane as she grows as a character and it's gendered as well, so the, uh, the characteristics that Helen displays come under traditional notions of femininity, so passivity, self-denial, endurance, patience.
1: It's, it's a similar kind of passivity that you would be expected of the Victorian child as well. I think the Helen's death in Jane Eyre very much seems this kind of Moment of this kind of set piece that is purely, or to a large point, didactic and instructive.
2: Um. So just to interject there. Yeah, yeah. Um. It sounds like there's this um, very formal kind of fustian euphonic language with euphonic repetition of words. It makes it sounds like a she's speaking to a church full of parishioners, not the whispering of a child to another child. This kind of this religious abstraction. Um, in this moment, she doesn't reference her pain or her subjectivity. It's all this kind of transcendental imagery and narrative.
1: There's certainly deathbed scene and like the appearance of a child, especially a suffering child, kind of lends itself to this kind of invitation toward didacticism wherein like it's like a mouthpiece for the the author's own personal view. yeah, yeah, like in Dickens then um, probably most obviously like the death of Joe the cross sweeper in Bleak House, when he's kind of dying and being read the Lord's Prayer. And um, when he he does uh, finally die, then uh, Dickens' narrator interjects with this very polemical, like, um, Dead your majesty, dead my lords and gentlemen, dead right reverends and wrong reverends of every order, dead men and women born with heavenly compassion in your hearts and dying thus around us every day. Like, it's very much a clear attempt to link the kind of death of this fictional child to historical circumstances outside of the text. That, in Dickens' case, being the kind of evils of uh, Victorian industrialisation and, uh, in like, industrial capitalism, that he kind of personifies in these, like, cartoonishly evil adult characters like Mr Quilp or, like, Gradgrind. Grind or um, Sykes and um, those in the workhouse in Oliver Twist. Those those evil characters are often shown to be evil by preying on the, the kind of purity of, of the child. There's, there's certainly a kind of Christian undertow there.
2: Yeah, and that and when when academics have commented upon these kind of deathbed scenes, they, say, they see them very much as a, a dramatising of the Ars Morende, which was the book that taught Christians how to die well. So, in a time where pain management and treatment are kind of limited, a good death isn't so much about treating that person's pain or, or hoping that they recover, but rather about um, embracing these kind of traditional notions of femininity and, and being a good Christian.
1: Yeah, and uh, I guess as well point out, that like, the, pre-hi- the Christian prehistory of the kind of Victorian child is um, quite obvious to see in a lot of scenes, particularly Joe's death, Little Nell's death as well. Um, and the death of a little scholar in earlier on in the old curiosity shop, words like uh, angelic, heavenly, um, the next life are kind of um, thrown around quite a lot. The child kind of has this lineage back to like the infant Jesus, most obviously, first child to be born without original sin. And earlier on in this slide, there's, there's a lot of pictures of the Virgin Mary with um, the infant. Jesus there, and that kind of feeds into this kind of cherubic image of the putto, which came became popular in Renaissance literature. And I think by the Victorian time, it, it's kind of reached critical mass of this, like...
2: Yeah, definitely. So, you, you, you see kind of similar images in, in American texts, like Little Women um, by Louise May Alcott, where you have the character of Beth, who throughout the novel demonstrates this kind of fe- uh, feminine, saintly, passive behaviour, and... That's only exaggerated as she's dying, um, where it says, Beth could not reason upon or explain the faith that gave her courage and patience to give up life and cheerfully wait for death. Interestingly, with Little Women, there is already an awareness of what authors like Dickens and Bronte are doing. And so later in the text, it says, seldom except in books do the dying utter memorable words. So there's this kind of like meta awareness that, oh, this is what happens in books and it's a complete fiction, but it also kind of still embraces those other aspects of this trope.
1: Yeah, that, that kind of meta. I said I wouldn't say it, but famously and kind of later on in the uh, Victorian period, then reading *Little Nell* back, then Oscar Wilde said, like a reader could fail to be moved to tears of laughter when like reading this like very mawkish scene. And by the 1890s, then, um, that kind of image of the angelic childhood had become so commonplace as to be kind of, like, co-opted by, like, even economic interests. There's a famous ad for Pears Soap, I think, in, like, the 1880s or so, um, with a child, kind of the first ad uh, featuring a child. Even in the early years of the 20th century, that kind of migrated as well to, um, like, political advertisements, propaganda... Um, children were kind of commonplace in wartime propaganda, uh, particularly for uh, those aimed at civilians on the home front.
2: Yeah, and I guess this is a good point at which to say why why we're looking at Victorian and contemporary, and I guess, um, at least for deathbed scenes, uh, you kind of see them disappear during the modernist period. It's not that there's not occasion for them, because death still happens, but you don't get these deathbed scenes, and Other academics have kind of commented upon this and have come up with a number of different reasons why this is. So, Pat Jaland and Alan Friedman account for this by saying, you know, religious decline, increasing medical advances, people dying in hospitals, and perhaps most significantly, two world wars, which completely changed that relationship towards death, where it was happening um, on such a scale and in such horrific circumstances that this very quaint domestic scene seem to no longer have a have a place within literature. Yeah.
1: It's hard to like conceptualise death on that scale and kind of make meaning out of it. S- something very similar I think happened with The Child whereby between the two world wars then in modernist literature then The Child's kind of conspicuous by its absence. I'm willing to be proven wrong on this uh, because um, Daniel Caselli's just about to release a book called The Child in Modernist Literature. <laughs> but in general then in Joyce and Wolf uh, certainly Eliot and Pound um, I think it's this reaction against the kind of high sentimentalism of Victorian literature whereby th- there's, n- there's no more room for that, that kind of angelic, vulnerable innocent view of the child and it certainly really comes back into the fore maybe after World War II then more kind of very writerly authors um, kind of meta-text that are very aware of the literary tropes there and literary traditions they're entering into. A good example is um, kind of Pynchon's uh, Crying A Lot 49 has a, uh, a scene in which the two characters are kind of watching a um, Hollywood movie of the week in a, a really trashy motel. And um, the, the last scene uh, is as follows. The camera came in for a close-up of Baby Eagle crying, one hand on the control board, Something short-circuited and the grounded baby eagle was electrocuted, thrashing back and forth and screaming horribly. Through one of those Hollywood distortions in probability, the father was spared electrocution so that he could make a farewell speech. Apologising to baby Igor and the dog for getting them into this and regretting that they wouldn't be meeting in heaven. Your little eyes have seen your daddy for the last time. You are for salvation, I'm for the pit. At the end, his suffering eyes filled the screen. The sound of incoming water grew deafening. Up swirled that strange thirties movie music with the massive sax section. In faded the legend, the end. It's kind of recycling those Victorian tropes of kind of children suffering with a with a strong Christian undertow, but in a way that is that's no longer the kind of purview of serious art, and that that is no longer able to provoke a serious emotional response, it's become more of a kind of fiction. And I think that's why in Pynchon's texts, there are a lot of children, but um, there are also a lot of kind of child actors and kind of children interpolated in text within texts, as if to acknowledge that that view of childhood is really a fiction or like a performance.
2: Yeah. One of the other texts that I looked at a while ago was um, Christopher Reid's Scattering, which is a poetry collection about um, his marriage to Lucinda Gain and her diagnosis of cancer and her death and his grief afterwards. And Lucinda Gain was an actress in real life and he kind of explores this idea of inhabiting a role in being a patient and there's a really wonderful moment where there's a little bit of dialogue and it's his wife turning to him and saying, am I not wonderful, in reference to her playing the, the, the role of the perfect patient. Um, what's interesting about this is that there's agency to her. She's, she's willing to take on that role and, and choosing to take on that role. And so, unlike these kind of Victorian depictions, she's aware that it's a fiction. She's aware that she's playing a part. And he kind of explores that in reference to her being an actress even before she was diagnosed with cancer, and this being kind of her final role. Sadly, though, as the, as the text goes on, the, it becomes impossible for her to play that role anymore. She's just um, too unwell. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit that comes after. Those last few days of drug drows, coma comfort, friends came, if not as many as before, to keep her company, to talk, to weep. At each arriving voice, I thought I saw a faint fleeting, muscular effort, adjust her mouth and jaw, as if in greeting, as if for a kiss. But how could that have been? And I think it's worth doing a little bit of a, a close reading, because it's a poem that kind of invites that. The anaphoric reference of as if, accompanied with the question that lies separate from the rest of the text, reinforces this idea that he's aware that, this is, that this, there's something that he wants to see, but that is not real. And so it's not completely attacking this idea of fictionalising destines because he recognises that they are in some way comforting to readers or in kind of real life um, to read something else into what's going on. He knows that she's in a coma and can't move, and yet he knows what he wants to see. And as an author, he's always lying between this kind of fiction and fantasy and and real life um, and kind of. Willing to reflect on that in the poem and kind of create this liminal space where you're actually not quite sure whether it's completely fictional or whether he's writing about experiences that are real.
1: I think that's the it's it's that acknowledgement that um, it's become difficult to know where cultural conceptions of something end and the kind of if there can be said to be one the kind of empirical reality of something begins. I'd say that since uh, Philip Airey's book, Centuries of Childhood, it's pretty much accepted that kind of childhood's uh, better understood as like a a cultural construct or at least culturally relative rather than this kind of stable biological kind of stage. And I think that's why writers like Pynchon and Barth play off these these child actors as well as these adults who, who are very kind of obsessed with childhood and have this very idealized view of childhood which often kind of blinds them to the the problems of of real children in um gravity's rainbow then protagonist slothrop is kind of obsessed with shirley temple and um in kind of seeing every child as like shirley temple he's kind of blinded to the fact that actually a lot of them are kind of being neglected at the same time on the flip side of that you have this kind of as well as acknowledging the fiction of idealizing children there's acknowledging the reality that the the, the, the euf- euphemistic and idealistic language conflating children with being pure and angelic and innocent maybe is kind of an evil and evil in itself david foster wallace is very good with this like a, a lot of his children are um not only not kind of idealized but grotesque and um often kind of like physically repulsive there's a Quote When in a brief in- interviews with Hideous Men, then a father describing his son uh, describes him as um, a veritable petri dish of infection and discharge and eruption and runoff, white as a root, blotched, moist, like something in a cellar. And yet all who saw him clasped their hands and exclaimed, Beautiful child, angel, soulful, delicate, break such hearts. But could they have seen that inhuman little puke white face during an infection? an attack, a tantrum the piggy malevolence of it the truculent entitlement the rapacity, the ugliness it's this kind of visceral imagery bringing the focus away from this kind of conceptual idea of childhood back to the body almost.
2: Yeah, and that's something that's interesting with deathbed scenes where you would think the body would be centre stage, actually in the Victorian um, accounts the body is almost entirely missing and so when I was looking at the kind of contemporary representations, it was interesting to see that the body reappears. So in Lionel Shriver's book, So Much For That, the character of Glynis um, has been diagnosed with cancer and her husband talks about what happens when when she's dying and says, Over the course of two long days and nights, his wife's organs slowly shut down. Far from suffering the constipation of chemotherapy, she could no longer keep any substance in, and from every orifice began to leak. Her vomit had blood in it. Her diarrhea had blood in it. Her urine had blood in it. And I think kind of a first response might be to think that the excessive detail denies the character of Glynis any dignity. Um, And I think actually the opposite is true, that it reinforces this idea that this is something shameful and humiliating if it cannot even be commented upon. So rather directly addressing it, is confronting the reality of what is happening to her body and what's, what she is experiencing
1: Yeah, it like defuses that expectation of shame
2: Yes, and it and it's not really about what she's thinking and feeling anymore because these experiences how she's feeling within, within her body goes beyond that and it, and it talks it later on about not her not being able to have coherent thoughts or communicate with her husband so kind of in reference to the The comment that Alcott made about words, uh, Shriver says something similar. Alas, by the second day there was no more talking. Not in the sense of the word that anyone might miss. Hurts, she would say, and he would put two more drops of morphine on her tongue. No, she would say, not an answer to any question. Fuck, she would say. Oh God, she would say, squeezing the the sheet so tightly that it retained the clench of wrinkles and release. Hot, she would say, or cold. Feeding her ice chips, speeding the revolutions of the ceiling fan, or pulling blankets up or down had to survive with the farcical ideal of keeping her comfortable. So again, we've got this idea that there's an awareness of this um, rhetorical importance of deathbed scenes, but actually, what's happening here is there's no meaningful interaction between these two characters in the in the kind of Victorian sense. But actually, the meaning comes from the intimacy of him just taking care of her and wanting to make her comfortable. It's a very kind of practical intimacy rather than...
1: Yeah, it's it's acknowledging the the, the practicalities and that such a thing can often be ugly, basically, and, like, unpleasant. There's a lot in um, Pynchon especially and also in a lot of female writers like Helen DeWitt, Toni Morrison and Kathy Acker. There's a lot of uh, trying to reimagine the role between, like, mother and uh, son... In the uh, pensions, um Vineland, it kind of uh, describes in like quite harrowing detail this mother going through uh, post postnatal depression, and um, that again is like conceptualised as this return to the body. Whereas her husband kind of sees her as uh, this this angelic kind of figure, she she kind of describes the the baby as like a like a host, like it, it becomes more connected to the body, and I think that's this kind of change of view that. That maybe children can be a burden, or children can be unpleasant, or ugly, or cruel. Even the in David Foster Wallace as well, and there's there's a lot of kind of um, children who are just simply very cruel and kind of selfish. And um, in a, it's a really good book called J.R. by William Gaddis. It's kind of about this 11 year old who. Um, starts like a very exploitative kind of capitalist empire by like sending off for like newspaper stock. And um, that's kind of directly subverting this like exploitative Victorian capitalist adult of the child and, and suddenly the child's like the one who, who, who buys into that kind of system. It's it's strange to see that that figure of passivity and, um, and kind of innocence suddenly become this kind of figure of it's hard to like. You know? Yeah,
2: and there's definitely this moral ambiguity with Glynis in Shriver's novel where in the Victorian scenes you're wanting somebody that's very moralistic and you, the other characters who, who surround them are meant to learn from. But actually there's a kind of falseness to that and that's something that Shriver picks up on. So Ruby's, um, who is Glynis's sister, comes to visit her and says... So how are you, asked Ruby, this prying empathic solicitation that leaning into the words must have been a regular tonal refrain during hospital visits and regularly backfired. Glynis sighed. Glynis responds with this. What can I say? My whole body hurts. I can't sleep at night. Five minutes of lying here in the dark passes as fast as the Paleozoic era. Then during the day I'm groggy. I still have to make conversation with the likes of you when there's nothing to talk about because what's going to have happened? The TV is tiny and only gets terrestrial channels. In the afternoon, sunlight on the window wipes out the picture. Being moved to tears because I can't see the price is right, is humiliating. The IV in my, ha- in my hand gives me the willies. I'm constantly convinced that the tape will come off and the needle will rip out sideways from the vein. I've trained myself never to look at it. So, is kind of picks up on the fact that Ruby's only feigning interest. The two have had, although it's not fully explored in the novel, quite a tumultuous relationship and Ruby's, Ruby's obviously visiting her with the expectation that they'll have this very wonderful, meaningful interaction that will provide some kind of resolve to Glynis who is going to die. What actually happens is something very different. The rhetorical question that Glynis begins with, what can I say, has kind of a double meaning. So in one sense, it's what am I allowed to say? What's palatable for me to respond with? Um, and in another sense, it's the kind of limitation of language to re- reflect how she really feels and then the follow-up comment my whole body hurts it, it lacks any kind of poetic quality there's not even a description of like throbbing or burning or stabbing it's just my whole body hurts and there's kind of the simplicity of the statement it gives it kind of a bathos where it's this complete destruction but also unsatisfactory and then that that kind of bathos continues throughout where the the fact that she's dying which prompts, you know, deep and philosophical questions about relationships, etc. But she's worried about seeing television, and not even seeing good television, seeing uh, chewing gum television. Um,
1: Yeah, it's like seeing that that blurring of the quotidian and what should be this kind of deep, transcendental, very personal experience. DeLillo kind of does that a wee bit with, um, there's a scene in um, White Noise where uh, a father of his, his daughter, like saying a phrase again and again, and it becomes like this kind of um, epiphanic refrain. Um, and then you realize later that she's just been um, repeating the name of a car that she heard in like a, an, an advert on the television. It's just acknowledging that, um, especially in a domestic novel like that, then um, having children is very much like a build up of those quotidian moments, it need not be this kind of transcendental. Dramatic. Moment, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, and I think th- there's often then a, uh that question of like the transcendental fits in very much with the idea that there's meant to be this dramatic change in the character when they become ill, and and this kind of happens later in in Shiver's novel where Ruby follows up with, God, Glyn, I guess being sick doesn't always bring out the best in people. The comment is intended to shame Glynis into being more amenable. However, Glynis will not be coerced and responds with. Maybe the best in me, to me, is hateful, vindictive, and ill-wishing. In fact, that's the perfect word. I wish everyone were ill too. And at first you can read Glynis' remarks as kind of this fervent response to the stifling passivity and niceness expected of her. Um, But there's also kind of a note of sincerity in the fact that she genuinely means on some level that the world would be a better place if we were more empathetic with one another, if we had more genuine in interactions, rather than these kind of scripted and symbolic interactions. Um, If her sister came to visit because she genuinely wanted to know how she was feeling and how she could help, rather than trying to get something from that interaction that would make herself feel better, the validation that she was a good person for visiting her sister in hospital.
1: I think that's like genuine empathy is the... The key thing there, it's... Um, a, that kind of involves a more complex relationship to death and the idea of childhood. And one that, like, yeah, w- like we should point out, it's not, you know, the, the, they're not making these characters unlikable just uh, just as a kind of... Just for the sake of p- it. Yeah, just like a pure subversion of um, their Victorian forebears. It, it, just, it just does give a more genuine view of the various nuances and complexities of, of human experiences. Like, and I
2: think Striver is very deliberately... Um, having a female character that's unwell because it's even more transgressive to be an unlikable female character when the expectation is that you want everyone to like you and that kind of, the conversations around unlikable characters at the moment very much fits in with children and with people who are are sick or disabled and that expectation that you're somehow you must be morally superior because you're a woman or because you're a child Um, and actually giving those characters more complexity, um, and just like more
1: more agency, like these traditionally very sympathetic pawns in usually very kind of like um, uh, emotionally charged set pieces, just yeah, making them a bit more complex and. Kind and of we
2: we do have the capacity to to understand and empathise with morally ambiguous figures. We only need to look at the male kind of equivalents of the kind of characters that we're looking at. And particularly within the media, you know, Don Draper and Mad Men, Tony from The Sopranos, all of these characters that have a really big cult following and yet do some really abhorrent things.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that kind of anti hero trope. I think it's, it's interesting you should mention the the, the kind of um, uh, making that character woman like, a lot of the kind of subversion of authors associated with postmodernism is simply, like, changing the sex and, like, ge- like gender and, and, and race of the character. Like, these idealised images of childhood, like, they tend to be kind of white babies. So it's interesting to read, like, a Toni Morrison or, like, a Don DeLillo who kind of writes about the experiences of, like, inner-city kids and kind of immigrant families. Borrowing some of these kind of romantic and Victorian terms, like, Cathy Acker does, like, a, this very clear kind of... Turn where she rewrites *Great Expectations* with a female protagonist called Peter, and the kind of ascent into higher London life is uh, kind of reconfigured as this like descent into like depravity in New York. So yeah, it just it just acknowledges this this plurality and gives more. It refuses to elide the nuance.
2: Yeah, I think it it shows that meaning can be created in a way which is not reductive or superficial, but was which just show that variety and subjectivity and the kind of awkwardness of human interactions and human experience.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.